sacred matrix, a divine paradigm of love and universal consciousness, with your host, Janet Kira Lesson and Dr. Sasha Lesson. Together, we transform the world. And now, here are your hosts, Janet Kira and Dr. Sasha Lesson. Aloha, everyone, and welcome to the Sacred Matrix on Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. And I'm your host, Janet Kira Lesson, with my co-host, Dr. Sasha Lesson. And today we're featuring Robert E. Farrell. We're interviewing Dr. Farrell. He received his Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering from The Ohio State University, his MBA from Western New England College, and his Doctor of Engineering from the University of Massachusetts, and he is now retired from Penn State University, which is my alma mater, as an associate professor emeritus. So 20 years ago, he began doing serious research for his science fiction series of novels, Alien Log, Alien Log 2, The New World Order, and Alien Log 3, The Dulce Affair, which is coming out in fall of 2015. He believes good science fiction is based on good science. His nonfiction includes the science behind Noah's Flood, and the science behind Alien Encounters, the science behind the creation of our universe, which is due summer of 2015, and the science behind gravitational field propulsion, key to interstellar travel, which will be fall 2015. Let's sit around and do nothing but write books. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> wait, wait, hold on, hold on. Okay, so he, I'm going to say a little bit more about you, Bob, before we bring you on. Um, his, uh, in 2012, his book made the bestseller list on Amazon, and he's a lecturer at universities, science centers, newborn meetings, bookstores, clubs. He's been on Coast to Coast with George Norrie, and I think, I would, like I said before, his books are Alien Log, Alien Log 1 and 2, and et cetera, et cetera. Dr. Lesson, what would you like to say about Robert before we bring him on? And I know you've been reading his book, so take it away. Okay. Um, I've been uh, interviewing people and reading this stuff for years and years and years, and I finally found a guy who ain't afraid to put it all together the way uh, uh, anyone that's immersed in the facts winds up putting it out. And this is uh, this is without the, the hemming and hawing that you usually hear. And he's used the device of putting it in a fictional form so he doesn't have to fight with peer reviews and all that kind of nonsense. But it is based on very, very uh, explicit, well-thought-out science about how craft works, about the alien presence here, and about what's coming down. And the other, the other payoff is a real idea of how we can have a peaceful world government that respects individual consciousness. And I'm so excited to have you, Bob. So uh, tell us what the overall conclusions you have about what's coming down and what are our prospects. Um, in regards to alien uh, contact? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I've been to a lot of uh, UFO conferences, as I'm sure you have, and uh, even when I, before I retired from Penn State, I started going to, uh, are you there? 
Yeah. Yes, oh. we're listening. Okay, I heard a strange noise, like suddenly I, I lost you. Okay, anyway, uh, so I started going to these conferences, and, and even today when I go to one, the, the, the main theme is, you know, when are we going to have disclosure? When are we going to have disclosure? And uh, so I go away from that, and I'm thinking, you know, we're never going to have disclosure until we get a grassroots effort to have disclosure. And that means you have to go out and, and get the people who don't even think about UFOs to start thinking about them. And that's the reason uh, I, I decided to use a fictional format because my experience whenever I went to Barnes & Noble to get a book on UFOs, I had to go into the New Age section. And the reader I was trying to attract would not go into the New Age section, but they would pick up a science fiction book. And so I buried all the information that I was going to put out in a nonfiction book. Uh, I buried it in fiction, and the reader, without, uh, you know, kind of painlessly absorbs that information, whether they realize it or not, and they're getting information about uh, what's happening. But when, the, when will the disclosure occur? Um, my feeling is the aliens are pretty smart people, pretty well advanced people, not only technologically but spiritually. And uh, they're wise enough to know that direct contact with us at this point in time probably would be disastrous for us uh, because uh, it, the history has just demonstrated that you know when you have a more advanced civilization that suddenly interacts with a less advanced civilization, that the less advanced civilization disappears eventually, and that would be us, of course. So I think they're, they're keeping their distance for that reason. I also believe that they were here originally, and they did create humans, just as Sitchin had said in his uh, landmark book, uh, The Twelfth Planet. Um, and the evidence seems to support that. And so I, I think what, once they got us created and got us going, maybe they created us for a reason, you know, like as slaves, but eventually I think they reached a point, or we reached a point where it was time to let us go, just like your children, you know, when they grow up to a certain, certain age, you, you just have to let go. And uh, it's hard to do, but you do it. And I think that's where we're at. They kind of let go. They're letting us do our thing, as good or bad as it may be. And uh, unless we're really threatening the entire planet or the, or the solar system or the universe, I, I think they won't intercede too much. Uh, but I also feel that there's been occasions where they may have ceded technology to us through people. And I'm thinking... Uh, Leonardo da Vinci could not have been a human. I mean, I just can't understand how someone could be so dramatically advanced relative to his peers that that somehow he was connected. And the same thing for Newton, same thing for Einstein, and some other really... Tesla. Uh, well, Tesla, yes, I was just reading about Tesla. He's, he's another one of those giants among giants. And um, So do I, you I think... think uh, I want to stop you there, because this is great. Yeah, I've yeah. been talking to other people... And they, the, one of the theories is that Leonardo is Enki, and that after the, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah and everything kind of fell apart, and, uh, you know, the, the official story was they left, but I think they went uh, underground. Um, one of the theories is that the Enki is Leonardo, and that somehow he's kind of uh, sending an avatar or be able to, uh, he's able to you know, walk among humans and not be noticed. Because we know the Anunnaki are very tall, you know, 
seven, eight, you know, ten, twelve tall. So there is some way that they can walk among us and appear to be human. And and Enki, as as Leonardo, is leaving all these clues in his um, inventions and in his art. What's your thoughts on that? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, in my lectures, uh, when I talk about uh, the Sumerians and, and Sitchin's take on the Sumerians, um, and I talk about the, the pantheon of gods that the Sumerians have, uh, the third down the list is Enki. And in, mm-hmm. in parenthesis on my slide, I put Spock. To me, he was, <laughs> he was the science officer, <laughs> and he's the one that did all the inventions and the technology and all that stuff. So I call him Spock. Now, I hadn't thought about him as being Leonardo da Vinci, but uh, that would make sense, too, I guess. Right. There's and you mentioned, Roddenberry as, you mentioned Roddenberry as being yeah. one of those people who are probably getting downloads from the friendly ETs, and uh, that's uh, the story of Spock. It came from Roddenberry. Yeah. Yeah. Th- th- well, that's right. That's right. Um, and and so is the- Vulcan really Nibiru? That's there's some correlations there. Was Roddenberry trying to sell, sell us something? Yeah, in fact, uh, let's see. Sitchin came out with his twelfth planet in '76. I'm trying to remember when. That's uh, uh, let's see. But that was uh, after Roddenberry started writing, wasn't it? Because didn't that series? Oh yes. Yeah. So. Star Trek. So, Star Trek. You know, Star Trek uh, premiered. I think it was September 9, 1966, or the first week of September. Yeah. So um, we're coming up on uh, was it the 50th anniversary? Yeah. Yeah. So so anyway. uh, yeah. So the, uh, there's not, not that Roddenberry copied Sitchin or vice versa, I guess. But the um, but but uh, in my um, my new book, the the uh, science behind Noah's flood, I spent a whole chapter going through Sitchin. I don't know how. Uh, you said you read my books. Uh, did you read that particular one? It's a brand new one. No, I've just gotten through Alien uh, Log 1 and 2 so far. Oh, okay. Well, this is a nonfiction book. Um, and it's uh, the the thing that uh, got me interested in Noah's Flood was reading Sitchin's 12th Planet several years ago. And uh, I kind of put that topic aside for a while as I was doing other things. But and I've now got really interested and spent more time researching it and finally decided to lecture. And, and that's my style is I develop a lecture, PowerPoint, a PowerPoint lecture, usually about two hours long. And I give that for a couple of years. And uh, that lets me kind of develop the flow of the of the, the, the subject matter. Um, and then eventually uh, I, I put it into a, a printed format in a book. And I just recently did that with the science behind Noah's Flood. And I was going to have a subtitle called called The Redemption of Zechariah Sitchin because I spent a whole chapter doing exactly that. But I decided not to because a lot of the readers who would read this don't don't know who he is, so I didn't do that. But I do spend a whole chapter going through almost item by item the things that Sitchin had said in 1976 that he was criticized for by the academics because, you know, first of all, he didn't have the right credentials. And secondly, he was he was way outside the box in what he said. But as it turns out, over the last 40 years or so, everything he said is coming to light. In fact, in my lecture, I even comment. I said, it's too bad the astronomers don't read his book because they're, they're gradually coming around to understand things that he already said 
1976 about our our solar system. And and, it, and I laugh every time I read some science article, you know, about what the astronomers are doing, and I'm thinking, geez, if only they would read Sitchin's book, they, they'd save a lot of time because he's already known since 1976 or maybe earlier what how the system works based on what the Sumerians knew. And yeah, basically that, he had a, he had a lot of um, verifiable hypotheses about the composition of um, the asteroids, about the uh, relationship of moons and uh, the, the bodies around which they uh, rotated. But basically, there's a source of things that you can actually check out, and there are better hypotheses uh, often than our scientists uh, have been groping along to create. Yeah. Um, well, you, you mentioned uh, the asteroid belt, for instance. According to what Sitchin reports that the Sumerians believed, you know, Nibiru entered our solar system and did all kinds of things, uh, one of which was to to uh, have its moons collide with Tiamat that was already located out about where the asteroid belt is. Um, and then eventually uh, one of the moons threw Earth and its large moon into the lower orbit where it is today. Um, and one of the puzzles that the astronomers are, are scratching their head right now is is why we have so much water. And uh, I point out that Ceres, which is the largest asteroid out in the asteroid belt, is 25% water ice. Also, very recently, um, we had a probe land on a comet. Now, comets come from uh, further out, you know, around where Neptune is. And they had a probe land on that. That's about a month ago, I think. And they, they, they sampled the atmosphere and uh, determined that the deuterium ratio to hydrogen was three times what it is here on Earth. But when they sample a, uh, a piece of, uh, of an asteroid, and, and they, they found one in North Africa, and they, they sampled it, and they found out that its deuterium to hydrogen ratio is exactly the same as what's on Earth. And same thing with the moon. The moon is the same thing. So that that's kind of evidence that the Earth really did form out by the asteroid belt. That's why we have so much water. That's why our deuterium to hydrogen ratio is the same as the asteroids. And, you know, why doesn't somebody pay attention to that? You know? Right. He didn't, he didn't go to the right college. Uh, I don't he know. He didn't uh, <laughs> out of the right professors. He's an as, in Azari. Who, uh, and journalists who uh, uh, read and had the most extensive uh, collection of Sumerian uh, uh, writings, and uh, they uh, st stuck their academic noses up at him. Yeah, well, that that's true. Another thing, as long as we're on the um, what the Sumerians knew about our, our solar system. Um, very recently, I think it was last week, I subscribed to uh, Science News. It's a weekly digest. Um, I've been doing that since I was in high school, and I know I get the uh, ebook version, if you will. And mm -hmm. uh, one of the articles uh, about two weeks ago was discussing um, what astronomers are now beginning to think about, um, you know, that there's these uh, we call them dwarf planets, I guess that are way outside of the normal circular orbits. And uh, so they're, they're wondering, did that maybe about 4 billion years ago, and, and they picked that time, 4 billion years ago, 
some other object came into our solar system, or or maybe it was already there, but it was way out and came down and started screwing around with all the planets. And uh, these two minor planets um, were distorted. Their orbits were distorted to the extent that they they go out as far as 150 astronomical units. Now, an astronomical unit is equal to uh, the distance from the Earth to the Sun. So 150 times as far as as we are from the sun. And uh, they're, they're looking at this and they're thinking something happened and they figured it was about four billion years ago. And um, so there's this planet maybe that, that comes in periodically and, and disrupts the inner planets. And they're thinking, well, now wait a minute. Um, how could a planet that would be big enough to do that have formed? Because, you know, the, the process is out of the debris that is left when a star forms is this planetary disk and uh, it accretes into planets and planets with moons and they go around in a circle uh, but if you have a, something that comes in from such a far distance it spends so much time out there that it wouldn't have time to grow and become a planet so they think you know what maybe it was captured well that's exactly what Sitchin said and that's what the Sumerians knew that Nibiru had been a captured rogue planet and 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 I have to laugh when they they come up with these dates four billion years ago that's exactly okay. what Sitchin said 1976 right. well, you know another thing to, uh, that's that's really uh, useful uh, when you think about this that means they had an observational record of some sort and uh, what Alalu in his uh, uh, had alluded to is that there were records that the Anunnaki already had that went back to that level of time, and that means either they had direct observation or perhaps some way of time traveling back in order to make those lengthy, lengthy observations. Uh, that could be, or it could be they're billions of years old. I don't know. Sitchin always talked as though they came from the planet Nibiru, and um, that always bothered me a little bit because I'm thinking if I was on a planet that was when they went out about. Um, I think, uh, I'm trying to think now, about 700 times as far as the Earth is from the sun. You wouldn't even be able to see the sun hardly. It would be cold and dark, and it wouldn't be very pleasant. And how would they survive? Well, well the but, theory is uh, that the material has its own um, star, which is called Nemesis, and it's a, um, a dwarf, brown dwarf, and it's um, different... Uh, a heat system, but there, it's, there still is heat. So that's how, and yeah. then the, the uh, Solaris is a binary star system. So well, I, yeah, that that's, that. that's right. Um, it could be, uh, but I think I have an easier explanation, and, and we, we have evidence of it in our own nearby solar system, and that is moons of Jupiter. Moons, the, the tidal friction that's caused when a moon goes around a large planet like Jupiter um, creates enough friction to actually cause that that moon to be warm. So in my mind now, I'm thinking they, this life form we call Anunnaki maybe actually lived on a moon of, of Tiamat. They were one of the moons. And, um, and, and life developed there because of the tidal friction that kept it warm, maybe uh, produced water, you know, melted ice, and so that it was kept warm and life could develop there. Um, that's the way I got around that the deal of not having a son and all that, because we know now. When I was in high school, if you if you were asked 
you know, what are the requirements for life? You had to have sunlight. Well, we know that's not true anymore. And so this life could form on this moon. Even though it doesn't have sunlight, it has the energy, it has the warmth, the energy from the frictional thing. And so once you have energy, you can have life. You don't need sunlight, but you do need energy. Yeah, and that also begs the question, you know, it doesn't assume evolution on the planet because that planet could have been settled from elsewhere also. Sure. But yeah. we, we had a long conversation with Floyd uh, Pye and uh, Dr. Lesson and uh, Lloyd were talking about how the planets have been seeded, and uh, Lloyd was brilliant. That's, that's uh, Andy uh, Lloyd, honey. The different, Andy. Yeah. No, no, Lloyd Pye. Remember when Lloyd Pye, he died last year. Oh, about the, the seeding, yeah. Oh, yeah. About yeah. the seeding of the, of the planets and how it's punctuated. You know, we, we evolved for so long, and then we see these punctuated increases in uh, species. Oh, yeah. And so, yeah, remember that conversation? Okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah. They could have, uh, the Anunnaki could have been uh, uh, the result of seeding. Uh, I'm, I'm convinced that Sitchin was right and that humans are a, a hybrid of uh, the uh, Homo erectus and the Anunnaki themselves, just as the story says. Uh, and um, so everything fits. I mean, the fact that Sitchin said that uh, they, the Anunnaki created humans about, he, he said about 300,000 years ago to do work, primarily I think in the gold mines of Africa. Uh, and then Ten years after Sitchin writes his book, in 1986, you have these genetics researchers in UC California who uh, do this study. They, they collect 100, uh, they collect placenta from 147 women from around the world, and then studying the mitochondrial DNA, they came to the conclusion that the first human, whom they called Eve, uh, occurred in Africa 200,000 years ago. So that's another thing that supports what Sitchin said. Now, he may have been off a little bit, or maybe maybe whoever did the study at UC was off a little bit on their assumed rate of mutation, because um, uh, they have discovered also recently in South Africa, this uh, I'm sure you're aware of it, this metropolis. It's about the size of uh, Manhattan, and mm -hmm. it, it, looking at it from an aerial view, it's by, it looks like a pile of stones in circles. And some people think those are probably just pens for animals. You know, uh, I don't know, but it was certainly not a natural thing. It was hu human-made, and they date that close to 200,000 years ago. And it's in the same region where there's all these ancient gold mines. So yeah, everything fits with what Sitchin said. I'm a believer of Sitchin. You may have sensed that. <laughs> I, I, I am, I'm a believer. I'm a believer. <laughs> and Christian wasn't the only one doing the translations. You know, there's Kramer and other, you can get pretty much the same yeah. information, but Christian uh, made it uh, popular and under, you know, we can understand what he was saying. Yeah. And so other authors are coming along, like yourself and Dr. Lesson, and, and I, I'm doing it too. And yeah. we're kind of uh, translating it yet another level to make it more uh, readable. Well, the, 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 uh, average person. This, the stone lanes uh, have granite boulders. They extend over a thousands of miles, and uh, they go up and down uh, uh, such steep places that uh, animals couldn't even traverse them. And um, Michael Tellinger has uh, pointed out that they had some kind of 
sonar uh, methods of, of moving uh, things, perhaps uh, loads lightened by uh, the uh, powdered monoatomic uh, gold, uh, and uh, it, it's to and from the mines and moving water up and down uh, yeah. uh, these ravines, and it just is go. It's it, it's absurd to think these are animal pens. I think. Yeah. Well, uh, in in my science behind Noah's flood, I I built upon Sitchin's hypothesis, and that was that uh, uh, thirteen thousand years ago, he felt uh, is when this flood occurred as a result of. Uh, Melting ice in Antarctica because we were coming out of the ice age, and and I, I subscribe to that except I've refined it a little bit because I have 40 years of technology that he didn't have access to, and uh, so my date would be 14,700 years ago, and uh, I support that in my book. I show graphs of sea level rise and, and I talk about mega tsunamis and other things. And it's very clear in my mind that 14,000 years ago, as we went into a, a period of uh, unusual warming, uh, that these huge uh, ice sheets and, and uh, glaciers, I mean, they were in, uh, the highest glacier during the uh, peak of the Ice Age down in Antarctica was higher than Mount Everest. It was 45,000 wow. 45, feet high. Today wow. we're about we're about half of that, but they're all the the, the deepest or, or highest glaciers were lined up along the eastern coast of Antarctica, aimed right toward the Indian Ocean, and um, so I vis and and there are also these uh, ice sheets that are floating on water, which which we have today, and they had back back then too, I'm sure, and. Uh, if they break up, because they actually hold back the glaciers from rushing down the hill very fast. And uh, a few years ago, I think 2002, um, there was a, a Larsen ice sheet in the western peninsula of Antarctica that completely disintegrated in a matter of 31 days. And it was the size of Rhode Island. And now when an ice sheet that's floating on water disintegrates, it really doesn't affect sea level. Um, but what it does is it, it no longer is there to hold back the glaciers because that's what they do. Those ice sheets actually provide back force. And I show a diagram in my book that explains that. But it provides a, a backward force that keeps the glacier from sliding down the hill as fast as it might. Um, so, so that is gone when that sheet uh, breaks up. Plus, the added warmth is causing these moulons on the surface of the glaciers that, that the water goes down through cracks and eventually lubricates the bottom of the glacier. So those combined effects cause these glaciers to suddenly start rushing into the uh, water. And if you can imagine, you've seen pictures of these glaciers calving, and, and they may only be a 1,000 feet high. Imagine one that's calving that's maybe two or three miles high. Uh, it, it would shake, it would literally shake the planet. I give it evidence mm -hmm. uh, when, I, when I talk about the uh, mega tsunami. Everybody knows about tsunamis. I show pictures of those. And the one in Japan, for instance, I point out that it was almost like a surge that wouldn't end. It just kept coming and coming. And, and that can be uh, how it manifests itself. But um, the, the mega tsunami is like 10 times worse than that. And, and I didn't remember this, but in 1958, there had been a mega tsunami occur 
up in Latuya Bay in Alaska. Um, you might remember it, but I, I didn't until I started researching this. And what happened was the bay was fed by a couple of glaciers, but there was this huge chunk of, of rock and dirt uh, about a quarter of a mile by a quarter of a mile by a quarter of a mile, if you can visualize a chunk that big, fell 3,000 feet into the bay. And the wave that it created wiped out trees in, in the local vicinity as high as 1,700 feet. And then further down, it wiped out trees as high as 600 feet above sea level. And so I, I give that example in my book so that people can think, well, you know, if I, if I say the, the tsunami wave is going to be focused and comes right up into uh, um, what is the Persian Gulf today, um, would be 1,000 feet high, that's believable, especially with such huge amount of energy. And, yeah, you know, uh, I would like to also point out that uh, the uh, Anunnaki had just made maps of the land mass that uh, was is invisible to us beneath until uh, we used ultrasound uh, beneath Antarctic ice, and the map is accurate for the land mass, which is further evidence uh, supporting the um, uh, hypothesis that uh, there was that uh, clearing of the ice sheet off of Antarctica. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you, now, in my book, The uh, Science Behind Alien Encounters and my lecture, I do spend some time discussing some of the uh, ancient stories, uh, and I, I cite that as proof that the, the event we're talking about, because I focus only on Noah's flood, the one that's in the Bible. And the question is, where did it occur? Well, I, I cite the, this, the history, the ancient history, if you will, of the Sumerians and their mythology, uh, that goes back to like Atrahasis and, and the Epic of Gilgamesh. These all st these stories preceded uh, the story of Noah in the Bible. But I give all three of them. I go through through all three of them, and it's clear that you know they're they're the same story. The only thing is the very oldest story, the Atrahasis story. Uh, in that story, the gods knew there was going to be a flood, and the key word is knew. And they chose not to do anything about it because I think they were having an, uh, an overpopulation problem. Uh, if you recall, when they created humanity, they created humanity with the ability to reproduce, but not with the aging problem that we have today. So people lived a long time. And if you look in the Bible, before the deluge, it was not uncommon to live into 900 and some odd years. Almost everybody mm -hmm. uh, before that, up until Noah's time, or even in his sons, uh, lived over 900 years. And then after that, if you look at the, the uh, patriarchs after that, all the way down to Moses, it suddenly decreases eventually down to Moses only lived to be 120. Um, so in the very first... So you first, think that was a genetic intervention to shorten our life expectancy intentionally? or I, I do. Anunnaki, yeah. I do. In the original story, the, they knew that this event was going to happen. And if you realize that they, they had high technology, I mean, they were able to travel here from another planet. They probably could travel all around the Earth. They were probably monitoring what was going on in Antarctica. They knew what was going to happen, and they knew what the result would be. And they, they had tried to solve the population problem, according to the myth, 
uh, by pestilence and drought, but that didn't work. So when when they figured out this 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 huge uh, wave or mega tsunami was going to occur, they made the decision to let nature take its course. That way, their hands were clean, right? They didn't do anything bad, and it would well, it would wipe out the people or eliminate them. And that's what the about story. education and birth control? <laughs> well, no. well, that comes later. <laughs> Another alternative. Yeah, actually, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. But um, so that was the ultrahasis story, and and at the end, after the flood and, and the, uh, we'll call him Noah. Noah survives and his family. Um, Enlil, who was the one that made the decision to not warn the humans who was originally furious after he found out they survived, later decided, well, you know, maybe it was a good thing some survived, and maybe we should f- come up with a better way to solve the problem. And uh, that's where I think they actually went back and did a genetic uh, modification. Now, scientists today are studying the aging process, and they focused in pretty much on the mitochondrial DNA as where the aging process is occurring. And I think within a very short period of time, maybe 10 or 20 years, they're going to have a good handle on the aging process, and we may be able to actually reverse that situation and, and get back into where people can live to be 900 years you know, old. Well, and, I, was, uh, I have a friend, Dr. Aubrey de Grey, who is part of the Human Genome Project and the Methuselah Project and all those projects, and he uh-huh. says we already do have that technology, but it's not out yet. Well, we're super yeah. close to having it. And we are. I, well, it, so it, it we are. isn't we're just that. Back to 900 years. So we got to do better. We can't just breed like rats. Well, that's them. right. We have to have some kind of. Well, they also had another motive, especially after the uh, nuking of 2024 BCE. Uh, Marduk, who had once been pretender to the uh, crown of Nibiru, had allied himself with the hybrids and with the. Uh, earthlings with with us and uh, basically they very much feared that uh, Marduk, he had built the uh, a launch tower in Babel, uh, the so-called Tower of Babel, yeah. and they thought he was going to uh, uh, perhaps uh, invade and reclaim his uh, throne in Nibiru and at one point even Inanna and Leo's uh, granddaughter had said uh, she was uh, uh, superior and, they, and that they had a right uh, so these people were uh, just, if you think of the War of the Roses uh, in England, uh, yeah. the royals of Nibiru were about that level of barbarity with each other. And yeah. uh, we humans were just pawns in their wars. Yeah. Uh, when I was writing Alien Log, the very first novel, I was halfway through still trying to figure out if the aliens were malevolent or benevolent. And I I, I logically concluded that if, if they meant us harm, they could have wiped us out a long time ago. And uh, so that, uh, and, and then I also uh, logically argued in my own mind that that any uh, uh, civilization, let's say, that is that is that far advanced, let's say a couple million years more advanced than we are, that uh, the aggression and things that we have inbred into us as a defense mechanism or survival mechanism isn't necessary when you reach that level of technology. Uh, you have everything you need. You have your shelter, your food. You, you you want for nothing. And and so the aggression disappears. That was another 
one direction of my logic was that they, they didn't have the aggression that we have because it wasn't needed anymore. Uh, their, their basic needs and, and even luxury are, are met. Well, the, the problem yeah. is, that, it, is that there's a military uh, industrial elite that uh, takes all the uh, scientific innovations they can get hold of, withholds it from the population, and uses it for their interesting warfare. Yeah, yeah, we have we have a problem, no question about it. Uh, that's actually I'm working on uh, uh, the uh, the fourth volume of the Alien Log series. I, you mentioned the the Dulce affair. My characters end up going into Dulce. And uh, I'm, I'm almost done with that book, except I haven't figured out how to get them out of Dulce alive. But once I do, they'll be, they'll be at Alien Log Maybe 4. Maybe they don't get out alive. <laughs> well, in that case, it's going to be a trilogy, you know. Well, but, one of the uh, things that, that, uh, that Major uh, uh, Richards had, had uh, said is that uh, President Carter had his own Delta Force that came in and actually rescued at least some of the, uh, with some help from uh, helpful aliens. Uh, he had the... Uh, a, a great new helicopter plus a one of the uh, hovercraft uh, as, assisted in the rescue operations. They actually got people out of Dulce. This is uh, what Major Richards has, has, uh, has written, anyway. Um, yeah. So, uh, but I uh, mine's a science fiction, so I'm going to have to do it a little yeah. differently, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Your fiction reads like back to me, i got to tell you. Well, that's, I, I try to be as factual, and I'm still doing some research on Dulce because most of the information I have, uh, I got off the Internet, and uh, it's, it's like reading the same story over and over again. It's, the source is the same for all of them, it seems like. I'm trying to find another source. Oh, but, well, uh, I'll turn it on to Joanne Richards, and you can interview her. And she's got her husband's in jail for life because he's been framed. Because um, that's what they do with you when you get done serving the military, doing um, secret projects. They put you in jail for life. Some of them. Yeah. And so anyway, um, but uh, she, we interviewed her at the end of the UFO Congress. And um, but I, you know, after the show, I won't put it live on here, but I'll um, give you her information and maybe you okay. can interview her. And get some background for your. We want to. We want to get yeah. your characters out alive. So. I'm yeah. Sure well, I do that. too because, uh, um, I you if you've read the first two books and I don't want to I don't want to give away the second book yet but, uh, let me just say that, uh, in the sec in the third book, um, the the aliens have realized that they can trust Wendy and Corey, and uh, so they can work with them. And, uh, and so in the fourth book, I'm visualizing that they're going to be giving yet another project to work on, and it probably will involve the Illuminati and some of the other characters that are controlling our planet. Um, but I haven't really worked out the details yet. Woo! <laughs> it sounds great. <laughs> I haven't read the books yet, so do you want to tell um, our listeners who haven't read the books Let's start with your Alien Log series. Can you give us the premise of that? Without sure. giving away too much. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, the whole reason I wrote them is, is to, to feed information into the general public, as I said. And uh, I chose fiction to do that. The story revolves around an artifact that was discovered 
uh, as they, we were, they were recovering the wreckage of a UFO that crashed near Kingman, Arizona in 1953. They found the wreckage in May 20th, 1953. Um, and the Army captain who's overseeing the recovery uh, sees this artifact next to the craft. And today we might call it a cell phone or a Palm Pilot or something. Back then, they didn't have that. He didn't know what it was, but somehow he felt it was more important than all the other stuff they were throwing on the truck to haul back to the secret base. So he hid it on his person. And then we jump to present time. He is now a uh, retired general. Uh, he's dying of cancer, and obviously he's been following the UFO scene because he knows they exist. And he is alarmed because uh, he he uh, has been reading where people who have been abducted uh, reveal under hypnosis that the aliens have said they're about to make their presence known. And being a military person that he is, he saw that as a threat. So he goes to the President of the United States and gives up the device, and the President agrees that uh, this sounds like it's not only a threat to the, our nation, but to all of humanity. And he commissions a colonel to put together a team of scientists to try and get the device activated and translated. And the main character in my stories is actually a, a young woman in her 30s uh, who is a linguist. She's a professor. Uh, I don't say where. I think I might have said Penn State, but I'm not sure. But anyway, she's a professor and has this innate ability to translate anything that's written. And it's sort of intuitive for her. She doesn't quite understand how she does it sometimes herself, but it's sort of intuitive. And so uh, it's the end of the semester, and she's tapped for this project, and uh, they won't tell her what it is or where she has to go. They'll only say that it's very important and the president wants you. Well, that, of course, convinced her. And um, so she ends up signing on for the projects, and she's taken to the secret base in Nevada, underground base in Nevada. Of course, we know where that is. And uh, mm -hmm. she, didn't, she didn't even know where she was because it was by a circuitous route in the night, so... She just knows she ends up in underground base. but um, And so then she's paired with this young astrophysicist, who's also unmarried, by the way, and about mm -hmm. her age. And his part of the project is to try and do a technical interpretation of whatever she happens to find out when, if they get the thing activated. And a lot of that first book takes place uh, in the base. Uh, they get a tour and they see some broken UFOs and some alien bodies. And these are all important things for Wendy to see uh, to help her do the translation and figure out what these symbols are in this artifact. And um, so there's a lot of discussion that occurs. And in the meanwhile, the reader learns a lot about ufology. And, uh, and I, I don't want to, maybe I'm giving it away a little bit, but I'll just say uh, they're just about ready to. She gets the device activated, first of all, and they're about ready to uh, try and tap into the the cloud, if you would, the alien cloud. Mm -hmm. The um, alien cloud, yes. Yeah, the alien cloud, when uh, suddenly the device is stolen and it turns out to be the dastardly base commander. And uh, they chase him down in the desert, and that's the end of the first book. The second book picks up right there in the desert, um, and um, they, they head back to base to finish the project, and something happens. I don't want to give that away. I'm not going to tell you too much more, except that Corey accidentally gets abducted. I won't tell you how or why. <laughs> and um, so his captor, Quellen, 
uh, is a little bit embarrassed, uh, but he's keeping them captured until they uh, resolve the problems that they were trying to solve. And uh, so there's several discussions that occur, and Quellen will answer any questions that Corey has. Corey, the astrophysicist, has some, you know, questions like how did the universe begin, things like that. Quellen will answer that because he knows he can um, erase his memory before they let him go. And one of the questions Corey asks is, why are you creating hybrids? And Quellen says, well, we're going to use the hybrids to usher in the New World Order, which is the subtitle of the book, The New World Order. Well, the next question is, what is that? And Quellen right. then describes this New World Order. Now, you know, a lot of people hear the, ter- the phrase New World Order and they have uneasy feelings about it. But this is a New World Order, literally, a world order. But it's patterned a lot like um, our present government in the United States. But the the hybrids now because uh, they're different. I mean, first of all, hybrids are, these hybrids are allowed to go full term. They're born into a family. That don't, they don't know he's a hybrid. They just know that that person is very clever, unusual, artistic, has certain talents, and will go far in life, basically, because of those talents. But neither the parents nor the child knows that, that they are a hybrid. And so there's all these hybrids wandering around, getting into high positions. And one of the characteristics of these hybrids is that they're not self-serving. They're interested in the good of, of the common, of humanity, if you would, and be more apt to do things that are good for humanity and not just self-serving, which is one of the problems we have right now. Most of our politicians right. are self-serving. Uh, and so you need those kind of people to actually make the change that I'm going to describe. So the New World Order, then, you have a government uh, pattern pretty much the way our government is. You have the, uh, except it's a world government, you have you have um, districts, and uh, there's, a, there's a representative from each district, just like the House of Representatives. And every elected position, <coughs> all the way up to the president, and including the president, is a four-year single term. No, don't even think about getting reelected. It's a one-shot deal. So for the House of Representatives, in each district, people uh, have to sign up, just like the old draft system. From the age of 25 till maybe 95, their their name is in a lottery system. So two months before it's time to elect the new representative for that district, a letter goes out in, in about 12 names or six names, something like that, are picked at random out of this pool, this draft pool. And this letter goes out saying, congratulations, you've been selected to run for Congress. You have 30 days to appeal. Those that fail the appeal process go into, into the election stage, and it's, it's funded, uh, it's, it's publicly funded, tightly controlled as far as what you can do to campaign. Out of that process, then, you get someone who is elected, and by the way, they would be truly representative of the, the district. You know, they may not even be able to read, but they're representative of the district, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when the election is over, that person goes to Washington for two weeks for orientation. They come home and they stay home. Maybe once a, a year they'll have a convention in Washington, but otherwise they stay home. And once a month they're required to put on <coughs> uh, uh, like a town meeting, to say what's going on, what they're working on as far as bills, and to solicit information. <clears throat> now, um, uh, 
lobbyists are not allowed to in any way give any financial benefit to any elected official. They go to jail. But they are allowed to do a dog and pony show in a public forum, and that's okay. So lobbyists now are no longer controlling the government. <clears throat> and and the representative stays home where they should be. There's no reason really when you think of it, why do our representatives and senators have to go to Washington and stay there? Well, <laughs> With the technology. <laughs> Not anymore. Yeah. <clears throat> With the technology we don't need to do that. Well, after four years then uh, they're done. <clears throat> and now they can decide, well, you know, I kinda like doing that. I think I want to run for senator. So there they just throw their hat into the pile and uh this so the senators are, are selected by people who want to be senator. And, uh, again, the process is similar. Uh, six or 12 hats are pulled out of the pile at random, and they're notified that they are selected to run for Senate. And uh, they have, like, a month, a month campaign, publicly financed, tightly controlled, so forth. And then when the process is uh -huh. over, the winner goes to Washington two weeks for Orientation comes back home and stays home. And again, they are also supposed to put on monthly uh, televised town meetings type of thing. Uh, you know, I really liked your idea of not having them uh, have successive terms, but having to sit out a bit uh, yes. so that they couldn't power an ongoing, build an ongoing power base. That's right. Yes, there is a lapse. Like you cannot run for senator sooner than uh, four years after you've been in the in the House of Representatives. So that way you don't have any cronies. There's no cronyism. Mm -hmm. uh, and same thing true. Now, when you're done being a senator, you may say, you know what, I'm going to run for president. So same process. And the winner goes to Washington. In that, in that case, the winner and the runner-up, who's the vice president, goes uh, and actually lives in Washington or wherever the seat of the world government is. To me, that is a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, which is was the original intent, I think. But that's the new world order, and yeah, uh, I can't wait till we order. get one. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. I I had a similar download, but it's a little bit different. It was it was that everybody, everybody uh, from the moment you're born, and you know, you could be called to serve. And they just served for a day, <laughs> so they had to know it all. So they only had oh. one day. Oh wow! Yeah, it was, it was a download. It was it's a whole science fiction book. You know, well, what will you do in your day as president? Oh, well, um, <laughs> they couldn't uh, do too much harm, but they couldn't do too much good either. So they had to kind of have yeah. something that that worked for everybody because, um, you know, it, 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 the president's just a puppet anyway in the current system. So there's no real power. It's somebody else, which we can talk about maybe yeah. the second half of the show. But well, I, uh, I want to stay focused on you. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I uh, the reason I went to four years because uh, the House of Representatives is two, but I talked to my representative who had just finished his first term, and I asked him, I said, how long did it take you to actually f figure out how what was going on and how to get things done? He said, it took me about 18 months. <laughs> So, wow. you know, two years really isn't long enough. But I, mm -hmm. the problem of uh, having two two-year terms is that means then they're, they're running for re-election and they're focused on that. They're not doing the job. And that's why, forget getting re-elected. Let's just don't have that anymore. There are enough good I people. Think he, yeah, I think you said it was like uh, Congress people spend 80% of their effort on getting re-elected and only 20% on the substance of the bills. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. 
So imagine how efficient our government would become. <laughs> <laughs> Much more. Yeah. Well, it's totally a good idea. Let's just give it a whirl. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've got to wait for the... The problem is educating people that they could be called to serve. You know, that would be yeah. another whole thing that part of your studies just growing up is what are you going to do when you're serving the planet, you know, yeah. the world as, as one of its leaders? That's right. You know, and when you mentioned education, uh, when I was talking about long life, like 900 years, I, I gave a commencement uh, speech at the Penn State in the year 2000. My daughter happened to be graduating in that class, so she was out there in the audience. She wasn't supposed to know I was going to be the speaker, but anyway, she found out. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, my, my talk was uh, technology past, present, and future. And what I did is I went back 50 years and came forward in 25-year increments of time and then also went ahead in 25-year increments to the year 2050. Uh, and I tracked several technologies, uh, medicine, communications, energy, transportation, um, and computers. But the thing uh, on the medicine, which involves uh, longevity, I pointed out that uh, starting in 1950, uh, every 25 years, our life expectancy went up five years. I don't know if you knew that. So in the year 2000, we were living 10 years longer than we were in 1950. And I pointed out, I said, with technology, that curve is going to bend way up. And I said, you – and, oh, by the way, the reason I picked 25-year increments is because I was talking about their grandmother back in 1950 and their parents in 1975. And then in, in 2025, it would be their children sitting there. And in 2050, mm -hmm. their grandchildren. So that's why I presented it. But I said – in 2050, I said, you're going to have a whole new set of problems to deal with. I said, uh, people may be able to live as long as they want. And so you're going to have to figure out how do you control the, the population? How do you decide who's going to have a child and who isn't going to have a child? Those will be issues that will occur in 2050. And, uh, well, that's a really good uh, topic that we probably should reserve for after the break. Okay. Well, I, I got to say, I got to say that uh, way back in, in the, the '60s, uh, uh, a demographer named Noni Nag uh, showed conclusively that when people have uh, women have the right to say no, uh, and uh, there's not uh, pressure on them, that they limit their uh, birthing of children to uh, uh, those that they can manage, and they they no longer have this uh, fear that so many of their offspring are going to die that it's a logical thing that people looking at their own interest and the interest of having uh, children that are healthy. Uh, All right, we, we have to pause.
listening to Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. We'll be right back Freaks, that's just a evil cultists looking for an answer it doesn't have. Hmm? Even your brain is just. I'm telling you, 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 I'm Real. The only place that fear can exist is in our thoughts of the future. It is a product of our imagination, causing us to fear things that do not at present and may not ever exist. That is mere insanity. Do not misunderstand me. Danger is very real, but fear is a choice. We are all telling ourselves a story. on this radio station. Its programs and its website by the hosts, guests, and call-in listeners or chatters are solely the opinions of the original source who expressed them. They do not necessarily represent the opinions of Revolution Radio and FreedomSlips.com, its staff, or affiliates. You're listening to Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com, 100% listeners-supported radio, and now we return you to your host, Pat. 
Aloha and welcome back to the Sacred Matrix on Revolution Radio. And I'm your on freedomslips.com. Don't want to forget that. And I'm your host, Janet Carol Lesson, with my co-host, Dr. Sasha Lesson. And we're having a fascinating interview with Robert, Dr. Robert H. Farrell. And before we get back to our show, I want to remind everyone to please go over to the website at freedomslips.com and make a donation. A dollar, five, ten, fifteen, twenty, whatever you donate would be greatly appreciated. And we do thank you very much for your donation. Your donations allow Revolution Radio to bring you shows like ours and many others. And thank you once again for your donation. Dr. Lesson, are you back there with us? Hello, Dr. Lesson, are you on mute? Robert, are you there? I am here. Hear me? I'm here. Okay. Dr. Lesson, are you there? Maybe you're on mute. <laughs> okay. Um, am I still on mute? Uh, no, there can you, you hear are. Me? <laughs> yeah, well, here, we can I, here hear I, you. Here I is. Yeah, um, so um, we, we have uh, Robert here, and um, one of the things we've been interviewing, uh, Mary Rodwell and uh, uh, Barbara, uh, and others who have... Uh, been working with the Ab- yeah. Uh, what's your last name again? Lamb. Bar- Barbara, Barbara Lamb. Yeah. Lamb. Anyway, yeah. and so we 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 have been getting uh, report after report about abductees who talk about uh, having been abducted, having been implanted, having their children taken from them, uh, ha- getting to visit them and nurse them. And uh, I think that uh, you have a great account. Uh, Robert, of, of how successive generations of these hybrids are created in order to um, be in a position to look like um, the population in which they're operating and yet to, when the time is right, be ready to uh, take uh, the lead in bringing us to a ameliorated world order, one that isn't run by uh, war and hierarchy and uh, the military. Yeah, and I wanted to say one thing and then back to you, Bob. Um, You know, we were talking about what happens when we, what happens when we live forever? What happens when we live 900 years? What's going to do, what's going to happen to the population of the Earth? And I think that what would go hand in hand is that we would be a galactic species like our ancestors before us. We would go out and colonize the universe, which seems to be able to support an incredibly huge amount of sentient life forms. So back to you, Bob. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, something, <clears throat> something certainly would have to be done. I will be right back to where we were when we had the flood, <laughs> you know, with the problem. Right. Uh, one I of think the, that was the problem. They didn't want humans to evolve and to go to space, so then it was a population problem, and I don't know why someone didn't think about yeah. birth control, but, you know, there's certainly more kinder ways than you know, creating children that can't be supported yeah, by the ecosystem. You know, uh, that's true. Now, the interesting thing, when I finished writing this book on uh, Noah's Flood, uh, I, I didn't have any conclusion in mind as I was writing. I was just putting stuff together. But when I was done, I was truly amazed, uh, number one, at, at how well the story, this hypothesis, uh, fits not only the evidence as far as uh, uh, the sea levels and glaciers and all that stuff, 
but it also fit right in with the uh, Old Testament in, in Genesis as far as uh, the, uh, Abraham and Noah and his descendants. And uh, if you go, if I can go back to, like I said, the, the, the flood actually occurred 14,700 years or thereabouts. And so here you can imagine there's these people living in where we, we might call Samaria, not too far from Baghdad, actually, according to the this, this legends, you know, it was Shurpak, which is just south of Baghdad, was where the uh, uh, Noah, if we'll call him Noah, was living at that time when he was warned of this flood. Um, and so along comes this huge deluge and picks up Noah and his family and carries them north, northwest, more or less along the Tigris and Euphrates River, and uh, deposits them almost where ISIS stronghold is today, ironically, where all the bad things wow. are happening. And, uh, and I base that strictly on the topography and I guess at how big, how, how deep this wave could be, you know, maybe six or 800 feet. And that's about how high you would, if you, if you wanted to go up in elevation, you would go about uh, that far north, northwest. And, and they would have gotten out of the boat and of course, if they were like me, I would have headed for high ground. And uh, I believe what they did is they went into what's known today as the the, the uh, Haran Plain or Plain of Haran. And uh, you can Google it, and you can see where it is. And they would have gone into the northwest corner of Haran and settled into a town and settled a town actually called Urfa, U-R-F-A. And they would have done that, let's say, 14,000 years ago. And there would just been a few people. But because of their longevity, and they multiplied like flies, after maybe a 1,000 years, they had quite a few people. And they started building temples. And you are probably aware that they have a, a discovery called Gobekli Tepe, which mm -hmm. is right there in that region and overlooks the plain of Haran. It's about 20 miles away from... Uh, Urfa, and this this certainly, if you look at the pictures of it, uh, it it looks exactly and has a, the stamp of Sumerians on it because they, they appear to be temples. They're they're round, they're stones packed, uh, piled up in a circular form with an inner chamber and an outer chamber, and in the inner chamber there are these columns, and it looks like there's about twelve columns because the the Sumerians had a pantheon of 12 gods. They were the first ones to have that, by the way. And there were two main gods. You had Anu and Enlil. And so the two tall columns in the middle would have represented represented Anu and Enlil. Well, if we keep in mind that we're talking 14,000 years ago, these people were late Stone Age people. And so was Noah, by the way. And so I began to wonder, now, could could Noah build the boat that everybody visualizes when they talk about Noah's ark? And I really don't think so. But he would have had the ability to build a boat. And there was a scientist in uh, 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 one of the universities, I can't remember now which one, who researched that question of uh, what, what kind of boats people could build. And he said 18,000 years ago, people had the ability to build boats using uh, sticks and skins you know, with skins over it. And he says, in fact, he thinks 18,000 years ago they migrated across the uh, northern Atlantic into Greenland. 
and that's where, of course, the Eskimos settled. And in my book, I show a picture of what Noah's Ark probably looked like, and it looked probably like a kayak, a large kayak. That would have been what he would have been capable of building, and that's what would have saved them and carried them up into this region where ISIS is today. Um, well, and I'd like to stop right there for one yeah. moment. Let's, let's address the, uh, the boat. Did you, Sasha, you want to address this, what your research has shown about Noah's Ark and how it got built? Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a number of... Uh, <laughs> what's, uh, what's, can you speak uh, into the mic better, honey? You're, you're kind of... Yeah, what the, what the, uh, can you hear me, Janet? Hello? Yeah, but you sound like you're muffled or something. Can you adjust your headset on your... So you're speaking into the microphone? Okay, uh, well, uh, the lost book of Enki that's sitting there based on at the highest and, and stuff uh, said that uh, basically um, a when Enlil uh, issued the order uh, for the Anunnaki to uh, go aloft and uh, circle the Earth or to go to their base on Mars or the Moon, uh, that uh, and he forbade. Uh, the other Anunnaki from telling uh, the Earthlings uh, what uh, was coming down because uh, they would mob the spaceport and it would be difficult to get off. And besides, he wanted to extinguish this illegal species, a slave species. And uh, but Enki, uh, and, and so he sent a bunch of, uh, uh, and Anu, the king, uh, sent a bunch of empty rocket ships to evacuate um, the rest of the Anunnaki. And on one of them, was a person called Galzu who said he was a plenipotentiary, the representative of Anu, and, and they looked at the seal, and indeed, uh, uh, he said, uh, what uh, Galzu said is to uh, the leaders, you can't leave or you'll die if you go back. Look how many days. If you go back to Nabil, you better stay around and you don't, you don't come back. Um, and, you, and after the flood, you can uh, land. But Enki, uh, who had, uh, was a geneticist to uh, one of the three geneticists who created uh, the Earthlings, um, uh, had a uh, was given a computer program by Galzu, which he put uh, Noah's computer, his wall, his read wall, so he could say, "I'm not speaking to you, Upanishad, and Noah, but I'm speaking to your wall, and here are the plans." Uh, for a submersible, and um, uh, and you can tell Enlil when he uh, asks you that he's going to float down the river and uh, go to Africa because you worship me and uh, not him. And uh, so, and I will send a boat guide, my son Minigal, uh, to guide the submersible uh, uh, to a place where it's safe. And that's just one of many versions, but that's the one that. Uh, Sitchin has recorded in the last book of Yeah, uh, I I tried to blend um, also the traditional um, experts, if you would, on on the Sumerian culture uh, into uh, what what Sitchin said. You know, um, uh, and just uh, using their own translation of some of the tablets. But yeah, uh, like there's there was three different stories. Of course the <clears throat> The story of Noah is the third, but you had Autohasis where the, the gods knew the thing was going to happen but chose not to warn them. Then uh, you get to um, Gilgamesh, <coughs> and now it changed. The gods caused the flood. And yeah. then and then you get to uh, the story of Noah in the Bible, 
And it's the singular God who caused the flood. So there was this kind of evolution of the story. But I go back to the original story where I believe the gods knew it was going to happen. Or the Anunnaki, I should say, knew it was going to happen. Right. Uh, I don't they could have caused well, there's, there's it. A, or did they have any motivation because it wiped out their civilization too? Now, there's a dualistic uh, 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 way of uh, dealing with the gods. Sometimes the so-called gods are the planets, and sometimes they're people. So yes. when the gods uh, cause this or that, uh, then a planetary object um, has, has a, uh, a huge gravitational uh, effect on Earth is a god, the way they allude to things as well. Oh, so the gods are the planets, and the planets caused the flood, not the the gods that were the Anunnaki. And I, I get the I get how that could be confusing yeah. and interpreted. Yes. Yeah. Uh, actually, clarifying uh, that. Sitchin uh, was careful to point out that um, they were actually the, the lords, you know, and I mm-hmm. guess we we loosely translated as the gods, but. They were lords like we would have the the Lord of Abbey or, you know, the Lord of, you know, over in England, Lord and Lady, that kind of thing, uh, that, that I mm-hmm. think they they saw them as that, too. And Sitchin did think that um, it was, it was um, Nibiru that was the thing that triggered the, the collapse of the ice sheets because of its close mm-hmm. approach. In my book, I go through a calculation, and I show how I don't think that was true. I don't think it had that much of an effect that it would have changed anything. It was very minor. It had less effect on gravity than uh, the moon does from when it's closest to us to when it's farthest from us. It's like 10% of that effect, and we don't, nobody ever notices that. Did you ever notice when the moon was, was had its closest approach versus when it – could you sense that? I well, couldn't. How, how do we know that? I know how what do you we mean. know what the gravitational effect was, is? Do we know the size of the Biru? I mean, it's a yeah. Ten well, times the size of the Earth, or three times, or, or what? what yeah. is, tell us all the factors for this calculation. That's exactly right. So I had to make some assumptions. First of all, I assumed its closest approach was the asteroid belt, and then I said, well, if it were as large as Jupiter, and I don't think it is, but I said, if it, even if it were as large as Jupiter, that the gravitational effect that we would sense would be less than that we experience when the moon, uh, like I say, is closest versus farthest from the Earth. So I really think... Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I, well there's I, still I, another... another... <laughs> you go. It's <laughs> more time, guys. Okay, you're you first, go. You're first, you're the guest. Oh, oh well, all right. Okay. Well, so, uh, <laughs> you go. I'm not going to talk. Okay, so uh, Andy Lloyd... Uh, says that we have to take into account not just Nibiru itself, but the detritus that stays 180 degrees uh, uh, along the orbital path of Nibiru at all times. It's called the, the 190 degree Lagrange point. There's also uh, detritus uh, crap, you know, uh, uh, pieces of rock and uh, and ice that are at 90 degrees, and that there are uh, big chunks of stuff. Uh, that goes through too, and it's not—it's not just a matter of gravity, but it's a matter also. Uh, Andy Lloyd thinks of impact of um, objects. And how close does it come? I thought it came uh, closer to Mars than the asteroid belt. It, it goes uh, right well, between uh, Jupiter and Mars. 
Yeah, oh, it's Jupiter and Mars. Okay. About about 2.7 astronomical units is uh, what I calculated, and that's about where the asteroid belt is. Well, I'll have to have you on the show with Gordon James Giannanolto and the other uh, planetary cataclysmic people yeah. and, and explain that to them. That, but what? Okay, so that that's what 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 did cause Noah's flood? How widespread was it? Was it planetary or was it a local flood? Well, Can you explain to our listeners a little bit more? Yeah. Well, there was this warming spell that. It, started 14,700 years ago. I mean, the planet was warming anyhow, but this was, a, let's say, a sharp increase in the rate of warming uh, that occurred 14,700 years ago and extended all the way to 12,700 years ago. And uh, I think uh, if you look at uh, 45,000 feet of ice stacked up along the eastern edge of Antarctica, uh, when it started melting, I think the first thing that happened was whatever ice shelves were along there probably broke up, just like we experienced in 2002. And at that point, then, all of a sudden, we had these uh, mile-high or several-mile-high calving, you know, calves of, of glaciers plunging. If, remember I told you what happened when, when a quarter-mile by a quarter-mile by a quarter-mile chunk of rock fell 3,000 feet? Now, what do you suppose is going to happen when you have a, a chunk of ice that's two miles high that falls basically a mile? Um, it's going to shake Ooh. the earth, and that vibration is going to, going to cause a chain reaction, and these things are just going to start collapsing, um, and, and that's energy. And energy is what creates uh, tsunamis and mega tsunamis. It's strictly a matter of energy, and that's going to cause this wave to travel through the Indian Ocean and manifest itself as a mega tsunami when it reaches the shallow end. There's also evidence of uh, uh, around, all around the world actually, but around the Indian Ocean, um, there's evidence of, of these um, mounds, these dunes. In fact, one of the theories by uh, uh, Dr. Massey, his theory as far as what caused the flood was that there was an impact by a, uh, an asteroid that struck yep. right in the, into the Indian Ocean. In fact, it gives a location. I show it on, on one of my maps, and it was it was a huge impact, and that caused the, the tsunami or mega tsunami that traveled up into um, the Persian Gulf. But it also caused these dunes uh, that they found along uh, Madagascar, the southern coast of Madagascar. Actually, they, they're all around the Indian Ocean, but it was the ones in Madagascar that kind of got them thinking that there's something happened to create these. Now, these dunes are like 28 miles long, 600, over 600 feet high, and I have a photograph of them in my book where there's several of them um, that are along... the in the uh, southern edge of Madagascar. But they're also, like I said, all around the um, the uh, Indian Ocean. But the, the uh, collapsing of these ice sheets would have caused the same thing. The same, you know, the same energy that created the mega tsunamis would have also caused these waves to wash over southern Madagascar and create these same dunes along there. Um, so I I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what happened. Now, why did it collapse? I think it was ready to collapse. It was We were in this rapid warming period. We had the ice sheets 
collapse that were holding them back. We had the Mulans form that lubricated them. So they just started collapsing at that period in time. And it, w it wouldn't have been too hard for someone as advanced as the Anunnaki to know the process that was going to occur, which is why I believe they knew it was going to happen and chose not to warn the humans. And the humans at that time were late Stone Age people. They were hunter-gatherers, and so so was Noah. And so after he got out of his boat and took his family into the uh, Horan Plain, um, according to the archaeologist that is digging up in Gobeki Tempe, uh, Schmidt is his name, uh, he described that area back then as probably being sort of like a, a paradise. He said there had been a lot of game, wild game, and so these hunter-gatherer people would have thrived there because conditions would have been very good for them. And uh, they would have thrived. They would have multiplied because they lived like 900 years, so they can make a lot of kids in 900 years. Um, yes. <laughs> and uh, so, that, but here's the thing, how it jives with the Bible. So let's imagine that Noah did settle in there. Ten generations later, along comes Abraham. Now, um Sir Leonard Woolley, the famous British archaeologist, went to Ur, which is in southern Mesopotamia, down in what used to be Samaria, because he thought that's where um, he wanted to find out evidence for the flood, for one thing, and he also thought that's where Abraham came from. Well, he accomplished the mission. He dug down about 41 feet and finally came to an area where it was water laying silt, and that was 12 feet deep. And so he, that was evidence that there had been a, a large flood. Now, prior to him doing that, and he did that in the 20s, he was down there from 22 to 29, and he wrote his report in 1929. But prior to that, the feeling was that Noah's, Noah's flood story was just a story. There was no basis Ooh. for it. Well, he proved that there was a basis for it, that it actually happened. And uh, so anyway, now... We look at ten generations down from Noah, and we run into Abraham, the descendant of Noah. Um, according to the uh, uh, Jewish faith, the Orthodox Jewish faith, Noah uh, actually and his his son Shem actually interacted with Abraham and gave Abraham instructions on the history. Now, you might wonder, well, that, how can that happen ten generations later? But I, I give a, a chart, and I show that when Noah died, Abraham was 60 years old. So he would have had plenty of time to interact with Shem and, and uh, Noah. And so he could have been instructed. by. And I think what happened was that Abraham actually was born in Urfa, in the same general region as Noah settled. And what happened later was when... Um, Noah was, I mean, excuse me, when Abraham was maybe 40 years old, his father, Terah, decided to take the whole family and go into Canaan. And Noah, uh, excuse me, Abraham had a younger brother, uh, Haran was his name, who also had a son, Lot. And so they all gather up and they're, they're on their way to Canaan and they get into this plain of Haran uh, about a day's walk, a day and a half walk later. And I think what happened was Haran, Abraham's brother, died. And tradition says that the plain of Haran was named by Terah, 
Abraham's father, after his son Haran. And in fact, Terah never left that site. He lived out his life right there. And so Abraham stayed there until he was 75. And then he was called, because at this time now, this is polytheistic. They had 12 gods. But Abraham was apparently had one god. He was called by that god then to go into Canaan. He took Lot with him, and they migrated into Canaan. I have a map that shows all that, and, and it makes more sense that Abraham would have been born in ur rather than Ur, just from the migration thing. The other thing that I show in the book is that um, Noah had three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And they all went in their own directions and settled their own nations. And I have a map that shows each of their nations. And those three nations intersected one point. And that point happens to be Gobekli Tepe. What really blew my socks off when I saw that. Wow. And the other, the other point I will make is around 12,000 years ago, humanity learned how to farm and um, you know, raise animals instead of being hunters and gatherers. That was about 12,000 years ago. And scientists think that it started more or less right where Gobekli Tepe is. It spread out almost following the same route that Ham and Shem and Japheth followed. So that's why I said I was amazed how well the Bible story fits in with the evidence. Now, the timing is wrong. I mean, uh, that, what that means is, first of all, Abraham, because he was living around 14,000 years ago, he didn't know how to write or read, of course. So he couldn't have written anything in the Old Testament. And in fact, he's not credited with writing anything in the Old Testament. Moses is the one that supposedly wrote uh, uh, in the Old Testament. And so since writing wasn't invented until 6,000 years ago, Mo Moses didn't occur till about 11,000 years after Abraham. So even though Moses was a descendant of Abraham, it was thousands of years later. But those are all things that just make just tied everything together and convinced me that that my hypothesis is probably correct. You know, I'd like to expand it uh, just a little bit. I can interview Jimmy Grant, Father Mahudi, and he says you're all still tell me about food again, honey. Can you speak more directly into the mic or something? The uh, Zuni say, yeah, and other uh, accounts say that it, it wasn't just. Uh, those uh, Europeans uh, that were uh, survivors, but that uh, other Anunnaki who were in North America led the uh, ancestors of the Zuni to safe places higher and higher uh, uh, and help them uh, reestablish themselves. And because we, we come from this Indo-European background, we perhaps don't realize that other uh, uh, people were also surviving. Uh, also, we have the account from uh, the area of uh, Tiwanaku uh, that uh, way up in the Andes on a river in the middle of Lake Titicaca, where they, uh, near their alternate uh, spaceport at Nazca, uh, there were also survivors uh, of the uh, flood. Uh, and the Ijiji, or the astronauts, and their wives also had been forewarned. And so it wasn't just this one um, boatload of, of folks, uh, but, uh, according to these, all these other accounts, but uh, 
our ancestors were pitied by other Anunnaki and other perhaps extraterrestrials in other places uh, besides uh, just Eurasia. Yeah, that's true. Uh, one of the things I do at the very beginning of my book is, as I point out, I'm focusing strictly on the the Noah flood story. Uh, there were there were hundreds of flood stories. That, you know, if you start researching it from different parts of the world, uh, there are all kinds of flood stories. But uh, I focus strictly on the Noah story. So they seem simultaneous. To... They they really seem like part and parcel of the same catastrophic events uh, that uh, were uh, reacted to. I think that the Anunnaki had a global-wide society uh, with their uh, various places to land and their uh, uh, generation of energy plants, pyramids that they had uh, all over the globe, and uh, that uh, the uh, Enki wasn't the only compassionate Anunnaki who tried to save uh, humanity, but there were others that uh, also uh, were there saving us also. Yeah, uh, um, that certainly is possible. At, at 14,000 to 15,000 years ago, sea level was about uh, 370 feet lower, and there could have been a lot of, um, of people living along the edge of the continental shelf because, uh, you know, the continental shelf is, if you, in a lot of places, you, you don't even have to go down 500 feet and you're touching land again. So and this, when this event occurred, very quickly the sea level rose about 100 feet. And anybody who would have been living along these continental shelves, or at the edge of them anyway, uh, might have been wiped out. In fact, I, I mentioned in my book that there's a, a lot of opportunities for marine archaeologists these days, because if they just go out to the edge of the continental shelves, they may find a lot of ruins, you know, uh, that are left over from, from this deluge. Are we about due to have another? Say again? Are, are we, uh, uh, do you think that Nibiru's here? There's all these sightings and photos on Facebook about some other, like a second sun or a body that's being photographed? around the sun, especially the sunrise and sunset. Um, what's your thoughts on that? Um, well, first of all, I believe there is a planet out there, and, uh, and Sitchin, of course, tried to tie it in because it was uh, had a period of 3,600 years, and Sitchin tried to tie that into uh, human events, you know, as the, like when, when it was closest to the Earth uh, is when the Anunnaki would you know, do certain things, and it would, it would influence um, human events. Uh, in fact, that's why he thought that that's what caused the flood. Um, so, And I believe there is another body out there, and, I, and I'm not alone there. Uh, um, Sitchin convinced an astronomer who was uh, one of the head astronomers at the Naval Observatory, Dr. Harrington, um, right. mm -hmm. and, and Harrington was pretty well known um, in his field for his ability to uh, calculate orbital fluctuations of like uh, Neptune and Uranus, and he, he mm -hmm. was pretty well convinced there, there was a planet X. And in 1990, Sitchin went and visited him and fed him the information that he had, you know, in regards to 
the orbit being tipped 60, de I mean 30 degrees from the uh, ecliptic, which is the the plane that all the other planets go in, and that it would be coming in from the south. And, and Sitchin knew that based on uh, traditions, you know, that the that the Sumerians had about that it would rise from the south and all that. And mm -hmm. Harrington actually went down to um, um, uh, down to not Australia but New Zealand, and with the idea of using, I think he said a, a binocular type telescope that he was going to use, and he went down there expecting to find this planet X because he knew he'd had you'd have to look in the southern hemisphere to see it and as the story goes um, he apparently found it and uh, had sent results back to Washington but before he could publish his report he died kind of mysteriously of throat cancer very quickly right. and so his, his report never got uh, published but, uh, you know, he had pretty good credentials, and, and uh, he believed that there was another planet out there. And um, as I was telling you very recently, two weeks ago, I was reading an article in Science News where some astronomers have concluded, guess what? Something happened about four billion years ago, and it had to be some interloper, that it wasn't a native planet. Um, and they're basically coming to the same conclusion that Sitchin came after translating the Sumerian information. Well, we've been talking uh, with other researchers. And we have a panel. I'll Debbie you on our panel. We, on Fridays, we do with the Anunnaki. But um, one of the things that they've been saying is, uh, no, I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> Go back to you again. I'll think of it in a moment. I, um, sorry. It's red. Ah, never mind. My brain's screwed up. Back to you guys. Take it away. Oh, you were going to talk about. Uh, did we, never mind. Back to you. Oh. Back to you. I'm confusing myself. I'm going to have oh. to think about. It. I make those. But there was something I wanted to say about Harrington. Oh, what happened? What happened? Um, 3,600 years ago. So we were talking about the um, Exodus. That's another event. It wasn't as great as the flood, but there yeah. was. A, there were a lot of. Or, or, Anomalies happening. If you look yeah. at the Colburn Bible, which is another source, as well as the Atrahasis, it talks about these events where there were, were you know, massive things happening. Like we, in uh, the Exodus, we have uh, the flood, you know, the, the uh, Red Dead Sea, or the Red Sea. Which one was it? Uh, yeah. Flooded and killed everybody, right? So, what well, happened 3,600 years ago in your cosmology of why we might be having something now? approximately 36 years later. Um, you mean as far as it might relate to Nibiru? Yes. Uh -huh. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I don't think it's close enough to have any effect at all. And I know I've, I've seen the same stuff on the Internet that you probably are alluding to as far as um, that there's this star out there or, or light that's coming in from the south. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm that they think might be the planet X or Nibiru. Um, now, one of the things that concerned me a little bit about Sitchin, you have to look at his time frame. When he was writing in the 70s when we had chemical rockets, and uh, because he described things as though they were rockets taking off and all that, um, I, I think, because I, I am convinced that uh, UFOs are propelled by gravitational field propulsion, and uh, I have a whole lecture on that. And 
And if you have that kind of propulsion, you can accelerate at very high rates, and you could travel out to Nibiru today and probably be there in less than a week or maybe even a day. You could be out to, to um, uh, Jupiter in 18 hours at, at 100 G acceleration. <laughs> and so wow. I, I don't think that it was necessary to have uh, this close approach of Nibiru in order to have direct uh, contact back and forth between the two, between Nibiru and, and Earth. And they could have come here anytime they want. It might have been a couple hour trip or a couple days trip, but uh, it wasn't like it was insurmountable. So don't uh, you but, think? Yeah. Don't you think that they, um, you know, four hundred fifty thousand years, they had more antiquated type uh, technology, and they too advanced over the years. I mean, I can't imagine them having no advances in their technology the whole time they were coming here. Uh, well, um, they came here to mine minerals, is my understanding, and I don't, I don't know if they could build chemical rockets to haul stuff up to Nibiru, or you know. Obviously, it would be easier to haul to Nibiru when it's closer. But uh, I, I just, you know, my my thinking is that they 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 were way beyond that. I mean, they were millions mm -hmm. of years ahead of us, and they they had already discovered gravitational field propulsion. That's what they used. I mean, if you listen to what they could do, they could hover. You know, they didn't really have flames coming out of them. Although UFOs sometimes appear that way, but uh, I just. My way of thinking is that it was gravitational field propulsion, and they weren't they weren't tied down with the ancient technology that that Sitchin was tied to. Mm -hmm. they, oh yeah, they were much more they, go ahead, Tosh, yeah, your turn. Uh, yeah, I would just like to say a little bit about uh, the uh, Moses Exodus uh, and the uh, Copan Bible. It seems that there's a lot of evidence that it was the uh, a volcanic eruption on Stromboli known as Thera which uh, wiped out the Minoan fleet and allowed the, uh, the Mycenaeans to uh, take, take over and uh, also caused this, this series of flood and recede and flood and recede. If you look at where Stromboli is, you see it's right opposite uh, the Nile and uh, that this was a part of the process that's described in detail. Uh, it, it seems like that was the result of this Huge eruption in the tidal waves from uh, from Stromboli or Thera going off. Okay. Um, I give a graph. It's interesting you mentioned this flood and recession uh, cycle. There's a graph that I give because I, I in my mind I was trying to figure out. Okay, so why did they stay up uh, in uh, the the highlands so long? Why didn't they return back to the the valley, the river, you know, where the river Tigris and Euphrates were. And, uh, but I, I show a graph that shows uh, there was that that main event that occurred seven, 14,700 years ago, but about every 2,500 years, there was another event almost as bad. And maybe it was tradition or maybe it was the knowledge that the Anunnaki had that, that this process was going to go on for a while. And that's what kept the kept humanity from going back into the valley until about six or seven or eight thousand years ago. And then, then it was safe. By then, uh, most of the ice had melted. The sea level was almost back to normal, and the, there were only slight variations. In fact, at the time they went back to Samaria, the sea level was slightly higher than it is now in the Persian Gulf. 
if you look at maps, you can you can see that you know ancient maps. Um, so that's why they didn't return until maybe eight thousand years ago. They didn't. They worked their way around along the Zagros Mountains into a town called Susa. They were there about nine thousand years ago, and then in about seven thousand years ago, they went back into the valley and settled into Uruk, and then eventually uh, in back into Kish. They went back right to the same places they had been before the deluge, as though they were guided by GPS, you know. Um, and then the first person allowed, the first human that was given the ability to rule was in Kish, and that was after the deluge. And it's in, you probably read about that, but uh, that was in Kish, and that human ruled for 1,200 years. But, um, yeah. so it's interesting My information... Yeah. My information totally confirms what you're saying. There were four rivers that the Anunnaki reported that were going uh, when, yes. when when there was much more land. And uh, one of them, the Gehan, was as big as the Mississippi, a mile wide. And they found it by ultrasound uh, based, again, on the hypothesis that uh, the Sumerians weren't making stuff up, but they were uh, talking about observations. So right. four rivers, and they've been, uh, and that confirms exactly what you're saying. Yeah, I have a map, and I show those four rivers uh, that uh, where they were uh, before the deluge, where they were, um, and that's what the Bible says: fed by four rivers. Like I said, I was amazed at how well, how how historical the Bible really was, even though the dates are kind of squishy. Um, the information seems to make sense, but you know, one of the things they're, they're puzzled because uh, if back to go back to Tepe. Uh, it looks like it was deliberately buried. Those temples were buried 8,000 years ago, and they're wondering, why did they bury the temples? My thinking is that's about the time they went back down into the original homeland down in the valley because it was safe then, and they reestablished their temples down there and abandoned the old temples, and they buried them when they abandoned them. They didn't want to leave them empty, I guess, because maybe they... They were worried that they uh, they they would have homeless people living in them or something. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, what what Collins uh, says is that the uh, the orientation of each successive temple, and there were a lot of temples like Gobekli Tepe, that yeah. were successively built to adjust to the uh, changes uh, that kept occurring, uh, and so they, they uh, and that it was actually. The way they related to the uh, constellations and uh, the appearance of uh, which constellation appeared uh, on the spring equinox uh, and whose turn it was to be the big shot among the Anunnaki. Yeah, in fact, if uh, there was a one one of the scientists who had been to uh, Gobekli Tepe was puzzled. He expected because there's all these carvings on on these these stones, and he thought they should be all of of like pigs and wild game, and he was surprised that some of them were uh, like scorpions and snakes and spiders. And in my book, I say, well, you know, the Sumerians assigned um, signs of the zodiac to their gods, and those would be the signs. So each one of those, if if, if a column had a had a uh, uh, snake on it, then that would have been that particular zodiac sign. In my opinion, I mean. Yeah, so it didn't bother me that they weren't all uh, just carvings of uh, you know wild boar and things like that. It all made sense. 
Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I, you got. We can't leave this thing about the propulsion center and how come people don't get crushed when they're going these uh, great distances and why there's no detritus from uh, uh, the uh, ships passing uh, through their area. And I know you've explained it really well, but could you put it in uh, some terms so that our listeners can understand how um, the hovercraft that the uh, uh, ETs have? Um, travel in, in such a, a, a ziggy zaggy uh, in and out fashion. Yeah. Well, uh, it all hinges on having gravitational field propulsion. And like I said, I have a little lecture on that. And my one of my next books uh, in the Science Behind series will discuss that. But uh, because it is theoretically possible, even Einstein knew there was an interaction between uh, electromagnetic fields and gravitational fields. But uh, and there's been things done in the laboratory where they've actually uh, produced gravitational fields. But the advantage of having gravitational field propulsion is um, the, the that field you you either free fall into it or free fall away from it, depending on whether it's a positive or negative field. And uh, I give a little uh, uh, demonstration in my lecture. I I have a picture of a V2 rocket getting ready to take off, and I. I have one member of the class who looks like they're dozing off. I say, well, I'm going to put you up in the nose cone, and and we're going to talk with the walkie-talkies, and I'm going to light the fuse, and then we're going to communicate. And so I light the fuse, and the rocket shoots up, and I'm talking to the person. And I say, well, what are you experiencing? And the person says, well, uh, I'm being held down in my seat. The G-meter says 4Gs and so on. And uh, so then I notice all of a sudden the flame starts to fizzle out, but the rocket's still going up. And I say, what's happening now? And he says, oh, wow. He says, uh, my G-meter says zero, and uh, I'm tending to drift out of my seat. If it wasn't for the straps, I'd move out. You know, I would be floating. And I'm watching the rocket, and then it starts falling again. And I say, well, now what's happened? He says, well, nothing's changed. It's still zero Gs, and I'm still tending to float. And so I, I say, well, you know, if we did this experiment on Jupiter, you would be accelerating as you fell, just like on Earth, you were accelerating at 1G, but you didn't sense it. You would be accelerating at 40 Gs, but you wouldn't have any sense because you were free-falling into or out of a gravitational field. So if you have gravity field propulsion, you just uh, vector it in any direction you want to go, and you can go that way. You can make right-angle turns. It's, it, it's You're free-falling in all these different directions. You can zigzag back and forth, it, and, and in a blink of an eye, you can go from point A to point B, and the people in the craft have no sensation other than if they're looking out the window, all of a sudden the scenery zips by and changes. You know, that's the only sensation they would have. But by having the ability to accelerate at these very high rates, you can get you could explore outside the solar system. And that's why the the book and the lecture is called Gravity Field Propulsion and the subtitle is Key to Interstellar Travel, because we're never going to leave the solar system until we develop gravitational field propulsion. And they've developed it. I mean, the, the evidence is clear when you look at any UFO and, and the information about UFOs that uh, that is the way they're doing it. And I think they've been doing it for probably hundreds of thousands or millions of years. They, they had that technology before they came to Earth. And uh, so they could travel all around the planet with, without any problem at all. Yeah, Is that, I don't know uh, if that explained what you wanted. Yeah, it's, it's exactly what, what I wanted. And uh, we have a, not that much time left, but I, the one thing that kept is, is striking me is in your books is that they, 
the uh, Quellen is saying the Greys lack a, a soul uh, that the other ETs uh, have. And, uh, could you explain that a little bit? I guess that comes down to what is the universe and what is life and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, uh, I was trying to ex explain the Greys as being more or less um, – like robots today we we call them robots but uh they grow them they actually then they have the technology that they're actually grown and they're living in the sense that a, a tree is living and a plant is living but only only god can can give them a soul that was my take on it you know i i have a hard time defending that statement but that's what i believe so so when i was summarizing what i thought you were saying is that it was it's the universe was formed by the big think rather than the big yeah. bang. Yeah, the, uh, <laughs> I, I believe that uh, the, the, the um, Anunnaki or, or the aliens, whatever you want to call them, um, believe there is a creator. In fact, if you recall in my second novel, they even gave uh, scientific proof that there's a creator. <clears throat> and uh, so they believe in a creator, but not mm -hmm. in the sense that, that we talk about God as as a someone on a throne with a long beard who interacts with our daily life uh and I don't believe that myself I don't believe that, I believe there's a creator it has to be just it, there's no way that we could have this universe we have without some intelligence behind it and uh if people ask me do I believe in uh, evolution or uh or or not I say well or design and I say well I believe it's uh, uh evolution by design I think the creator was wise enough to know that for life to continue, it has to be able to uh, adjust and adapt to changing situations by evolving or through evolution. Great. Thank you. Great. Well, we've got about uh, eight minutes. Uh, what do we want to cover in the last eight minutes? Uh, what do you want? We want you to make sure you tell our listeners what you want to convey. Okay. Well, um, if the if the listeners are interested in getting my books, uh, every one of my books is available as an ebook. And if you're out in Hawaii, that's probably good news. Um, except for my brand new book, they're all also available as paper books through Barnes and Noble or Amazon. I just recently lowered the price on all of my ebooks to three dollars to make it easy for your audience to acquire my books. Uh, so I'll have them. I'll have the price down to three dollars for a while before I take it back up again. And so I expect a stampede to to buy my ebooks. <laughs> Yay! I, I I love the books. I highly recommend them. Yeah. If if they do want paper books, like I said, they can get them at Barnes and Noble or um, um, Amazon. But I would. They can also get them directly from me. All they have to do is contact me at author at alien log and I will send them an order form and they can order whatever books they want and um but except for my latest one the science behind Noah's flood the only way they can get a paper version of that is to contact me at author at alien log um they are not out in the bookstores yet only oh, the ebook yeah but the, but the ebook oh, right. has some advantages in, in that it's color. It has color, and uh, unfortunately, my paper books are grayscale. So I'm well, I'm all for ebooks myself. Yeah, color printing is very very expensive. So it, it, grayscale it is. is affordable for people to have a print. 
Uh, tell us a little bit more, let's see, the, about your lectures. You have, oh, let's see, the yeah. science behind alien encounters. You want to tell us a little bit more about the science yeah. behind alien encounters? Yeah, uh, keep in mind um, that my whole mission since I retired is really to reach out to the layperson, the person who doesn't think once even about aliens or UFOs. They're too busy making a living. Um, but they do relax and read science fiction. Um, and my lectures then uh, are tailored the same way. My audience generally are lay people, um, except I do uh, sometimes when I go to MUFON, I lecture there, and those people generally are are you know into it. They're ufologists, if you would. But most times I'm lecturing at um, uh, retirement centers, libraries, and things like that, where they're just lay people curious, you know. And so my lecture, that particular one especially, is tailored so that if you've had high school science, you can understand everything that I explain. Because I do explain um, how you how you can produce gravitational field propulsion. I talk about peer-reviewed papers that have been written on the subject, and also the research that's being done in the laboratory along that. I explain how UFOs can cloak themselves. I explain how a UFO can hover over a shallow body of water and eventually the, the water freezes. Um, and I explain how, like the people who abducted Betty and Barney Hill from a planet that was 40 light years away, how for them it was maybe only a two-week trip to get here, so it wasn't a big deal, uh, because they had gravitational field propulsion and could accelerate at 100 Gs. Now, I pick 100 Gs only because that's been documented. There's nothing to say you couldn't accelerate at 1,000 Gs. It doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. And it well, appears couldn't they have colonies close to the Earth anyway? I mean, they, for all we know, they're all over the place. They have oh, they are. I think they're under the ocean. Uh, in fact, in my book, uh, in the first book, I think it is, uh, I placed them out in the asteroid belt. And mm -hmm. the reason for that is, uh, as Sasha will attest, it's a very large ship out there, several miles in dimension. And uh, and so, but they're out there in the asteroid belt. Their 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 thought is that it would be a fairly long time before we had the technology to be able to see them, and which is why right. they placed placed their home base out there. They also had a base on the moon. So when uh, Corey gets abducted. He ends up going to that base on the moon, and if you look at the cover of my book, Alien Log 2, you'll see there's a, a UFO, like cigar-type UFO, hovering over the surface of the moon. That's where that's where they took Corey. Oh, I wanted to we, ask. Go ahead, Todd. Oh, I just wonder what words of advice you have for people who have experienced contact. Uh, uh, with the aliens, or, uh, abductees, or uh, astral contactees, what would you like them to know? Um, well, I do encounter them, believe it or not. Almost invariably, uh, I, I'll give a especially my my science. Or whatever. And hello? Okay. Hello? And, and so I, I lost you for a second. Oh, okay. So my mic isn't close enough? How's that? I don't know. It's like a fade out. Yeah, it's good. You're in. Okay. So it seems that uh, I recognize sometimes people come because they're wrestling with this abduction problem and they need more information. 
I'm not qualified to help them, I don't feel, in that. But I do generally have business cards of people in my area who do have that experience. You know, they're, they're hypnotherapists, and, and they're experienced with abductees. And I usually give them that card if, if they uh really not qualified to help them with that. Oh, that's great. Well, we are we are hypnotherapists, Dr. Les and I, and we can even do Skype sessions with somebody it has had experiences. Oh, uh, we we love working with people. I didn't know if you knew that, but Dr. No, Les I didn't has know been that. a, a yeah. psychotherapist and hypnotherapist for over forty years. I had one more question. We got one minute left. Uh, how did you go from being a professor emeritus to this UFO stuff? You know, it's very interesting. Uh, first of all, I had an interest in UFOs, and I convinced I was convinced, first of all, they existed. Secondly, <laughs> that they were, were using gravitational field propulsion. And as an engineer, I thought, you know, when I retire, I'm going to learn more about physics and try and figure out how to do that, because that would be a great thing. But after I retired, I, there was this, I just suddenly felt compelled that I needed to write these books and and to lecture to lay people and kind of uh, pave the way, you know, like John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> it's not what I planned for my retirement. I don't know why I'm doing it, but I figure it's my mission. So well, We're glad you're doing it, and that is the end of another show. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Robert Bob, for coming on our show. And we'll see you, you again next week, sister. Much love and blessings. Aloha.